0: Money FM 89.3, Best of Your Money. Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Is our collective distraction a real problem for the world? Some 9 million people have viewed his TED Talk. Johan Hari is a British journalist who has studied our inability to focus on the individual and the collective level for his book, a terrific one that we're reading today. The prevalent business model, he says, is one that hacks our attention. And it is your attention that is the product that companies are selling. Reclaiming our ability to focus, Johan Hari says, requires an attention focus movement not heaping blame on ourselves on an individual level. But how will we organize if we're all too distracted? (laughs) We're reading Stolen Focus. Johan Hari, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for being here.
1: Uh, Michelle, I'm so, so happy to be with you. Thanks so much.
0: Johan, I I thought it was really interesting. You know, when we think about our inability to focus, we instinctively focus on technology and social media as a Possible cause, but your book broadens an analysis, and you say there are twelve forces that have led to the erosion of our ability to focus. Why is technology only one of those twelve?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting you say that, Michelle, because that was how I thought when I started. When I when I began to write the book, I wrote it because, for quite a selfish reason, I noticed that with each year that passed. My own ability to focus and pay attention was getting worse. Things that require deep focus that are so deep to my sense of who I am, like reading books, having deep conversations, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean that they were getting harder and harder. I could still do them, but they were getting harder and I noticed this seemed to be happening to kind of everyone around me and and really I had two stories in my head about why this was happening. Um, which I now realize were hugely oversimplified. The first was that I blamed myself, right? I thought, well, you're weak. You don't have willpower. Why aren't you strong enough to resist these distractions? And secondly, I thought, well, like you say, someone invented the smartphone and that did this to me. But actually, to understand what was going on, I decided to go on a journey to try to get to the bottom of this, not just on myself, but I could see this was happening to so many people around me. So I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to go on a really big journey all over the world, from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne, to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus. And what I learned from them is, like you say, there's actually scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better can make your attention worse which range really widely from the food we eat to the sleep we don't get to the air we breathe and and i learned crucially that our attention didn't collapse our attention has been stolen from us by some really big forces but once you understand those forces we can begin to solve this problem properly
0: In the book, as you say, you take us on this journey with you, where you do attempt to unplug from the grid. You go to a small town. You get a phone that does not plug into the internet, and that is so courageous. (laughs) (laughs) Share with our listeners: Did abandoning your phone help you reclaim attention?
1: It was so interesting because, like I say, at the start, I was very locked in this story. I just didn't have enough willpower, right? So I thought I'm going to do the ultimate form of willpower, like you say. I went away for three months. Obviously, I knew this wouldn't be a realistic solution for the long term, but I just, to be honest, I was tired of being wired. I couldn't bear what was happening to my attention. So I went away to a little place called Provincetown, and I had no phone that could access the internet, and I had no laptop that could get online. And it was a really fascinating three months. The thing that most amazed me was how much my attention came back. You know, I was nearly 40. I thought, well, maybe my attention is getting worse because I'm just getting older. Maybe this is just what happens as you age my attention went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. You know, I could read books for eight hours a day. It was extraordinary. And there were some ups and downs to be sure, and some things that I missed about the online world. But I remember at the end of the three months, I had been so productive, so much more productive than I had been in years. I thought, why would I ever go back to the way I lived before? And I got reunited with my phone and my laptop. And within about a month, back to where I've been, right? And I was like, okay, how am I going to integrate these things that I learned there and many other things I later learned about attention into my ordinary life? Because we're not going to join the Amish and all convert and give up our phones, nor should we, by the way. Um, So I was like, okay, how how do we sustainably solve these problems? And that's when I went on the big journey and met all the scientists and went to places that begun to kind of solve these problems in people's everyday lives from France to New Zealand.
0: So for the listener... Will they be able to pick up tips, do you think, from your book that will help them integrate, um, you know, what you've learned about really realistically unplugging?
1: So it's not about unplugging, but yeah, 100%. I convey in the book dozens of things that I learned from two hundred, more than 200 of the leading experts in the world on mm-hmm. attention and focus. And I think, in a way, the way I began to think about it, how we've got to approach this problem, is you have got to approach it at two levels. I think of them as defence and offence. Mm-hmm. So there are dozens of things that we can all do as individuals to protect ourselves and our children uh, and their attention right and, and yeah. i'm passionately in favor them i'll give you there's many examples i give in the book but i'll give you an example of one in the corner over there i'm stupidly pointing but you can't see um i have something called a k-safe it's a plastic safe you take off the lid you put in your phone you put on the lid you turn the dial at the top and it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day i use that four hours a day to do my writing i imprison my phone i lock it away right i won't sit down and watch a film with my partner unless we both imprison our phones i won't have my friends around for dinner unless people agree to put their phone in the phone jail right um so that's an example of one of many individual things that we can all do but i want to be really honest with people i'm passionately in favor of the dozens of individual steps that i argue for in the book these forms of defending ourselves but i want to level with people that will massively help a bit more only get you so far in the current environment in which we live because at the moment it's like someone is pouring acid over our attention all day or you think about it it's more like someone is pouring itching powder over your attention all day and then that person is leaning forward and going hey buddy you might want to learn how to meditate then you wouldn't scratch so much and you would go okay i'll learn to meditate that's hugely valuable but you need to stop pouring itching powder on me and and that's why i say we have to have an Element of offense where we have to take on the factors that are doing this to us. And we need to stop them from doing it. That can sound grand and fancy and a bit. Or oh, how will we do that? But I mm-hmm. went to places that had started to do it, and I talk about them in the book.
0: Does your book talk about how even dogs can have this sense of attention deficit disorder or ADHD?
1: <laughs> so this relates to a really big aspect of the book that is one of the ones I feel most passionately about, which is children. Right? There's lots of evidence that children are really struggling with their focus and attention at the moment. For every here in Britain, for example, for every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. And I went to interview someone, this is going to sound like a joke to your listeners, I promise it's not a joke. I went to interview a man named Professor Nicholas Dodman, who's a lovely man and a professor of veterinary science at Tufts University and a vet. And he was the pioneer of diagnosing dogs with ADHD. So lots of dogs are brought to him with attention problems and in inverted commas, they run around a lot, they bark a lot and initially he tries giving them training but if that doesn't work he gives them ritalin right the stimulant drug that's often given to children uh, and the dogs kind of calm down a bit when they're given the ritalin and before i went to see him i thought he would say what a lot of doctors say about you know childhood adhd which is that it's primarily a biological problem but professor um professor Dobbin was very candid with me he said look dogs are meant to run around for about four hours a day off leash right basically no dogs in our societies do that so they've got what he called. It was a really interesting phrase, and it really stayed with me. Frustrated biological objectives. Right? They need to run around. They need to burn off energy. They can't. So it's pent up. I mean, he described for me, for example, one dog that was uh, lived in an apartment in Manhattan, a tiny little apartment, was diagnosed with ADHD, then got sent to live on a farm upstate New York. Turned out his ADHD mysteriously went away. And I kept thinking about that phrase: frustrated biological objectives because one of the things that's happening to our children and I want to be clear it's not the only thing some children do have a genetic inheritance that does make it slightly harder for them to focus but one of the things that's happening is and particularly in the last 2 years during the pandemic there's been a profound transformation in the nature of childhood in the last 30 or 40 years that has really accelerated in the last 2 years you know children used to walk to school on their own they used to run around all the time they used to spend most of their time after school playing freely with other children and that i don't know enough about the situation in singapore but in most in much of the western world that has simply ended right And um, by 2003 only 10 percent of american children ever played outside without adult supervision and it turns out that childhood we've lost contained loads of things that are really important for children to be able to focus and pay attention um Partly, when children play freely with other children without adults standing over them, they learn how to use their attention. And when kids get to run around, they create more brain connections. They're much better at paying attention. So, a key part where a lot of my books, stolen focus, is easy to describe problems. My book, stolen focus, is about the solutions. And there's lots of big solutions I advocate that we can pursue to restore our attention and to restore our children's attention. And one of them is we have to restore childhood we have to we can all see that locking up whatever you think about the covid restrictions and i was broadly in favor of them we can all see that locking our children away for the last two years has terribly damaged them and it's damaged their attention it's damaged their focus they're even more obsessed with screens than they were before the only place they get to feel they're exploring anything is on fortnite or 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 minecraft or world of warcraft and we've got to restore childhood. They've got to be able to go out of their homes again. They've got to be able to play freely with other kids. And I talk about very practical programs in the United States that were introduced, that have, which I went to see, that have been restored childhood, which in turn begins to restore children's attention and focus.
0: Okay, let me play devil's advocate here, Johan. Sure. I think what many experienced during COVID-19 was uncomfortable isolation. But those of us who are creative, and I've spoken to you know, a number of best-selling authors, Elizabeth Gilbert, for example, who said this was perhaps the best time for her creativity because the world took a pause. And as a writer, you know, you need that focus to be able to apply seat to pants and just think deeply and write. So I wonder if, in a way, COVID has allowed us to rediscover what we need in order to really focus. And that is to be in one place physically locked away from the distractions So in a way, has the COVID restrictions been good for attention?
1: I mean, maybe for some people, but we haven't been locked away without distractions. We've been locked away with nothing but our screens, right? And I think we have to think about some of the ways in which that's affected attention. So let's think about, I went to interview Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world at MIT. and He said to me, there's one thing you need to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain, that human brain has not significantly changed in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any timescale any of us are going to see. But what's happened is we've fallen from mass delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. I'm sure it's pretty similar in Singapore. And what happens is scientists get not just teenagers, but older people as well, into labs, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And what they discover is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very rapidly between tasks. You switch. What was that message on WhatsApp? What did Michelle just ask me? What does it say on the TV there about Ukraine? What's this message on Facebook? Wait, what did Michelle ask me? So we're juggling very, very rapidly. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. The technical term for that is the switch cost effect. So the switch cost effect is where when you switch rapidly between tasks, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll be less creative. You'll remember less of what you do. And this sounds like it might be a small effect. This is a big effect. Some studies found just receiving eight text messages an hour, which doesn't sound like very much, reduces your ability to focus on the main thing you're trying to focus on by 30%. Now, I would argue we are all losing a large amount of our brain power most of the time as a result of this constant switching. So maybe if we've been all shut away in monasteries (laughs) without our devices, that what you're saying, and of course I'm sure there are some people like Elizabeth Gilbert, who's a wonderful writer who can kind of discipline themselves. But I think what's actually happened, the evidence is our screen time actually massively went up for the average person during COVID. I think it's another thing that happened during COVID that's really negatively affected attention and focus that I think is worth thinking about as we come out of the pandemic as fingers crossed touch infinite amounts of wood it seems we're doing so I remember at the start of the pandemic lots of people saying to me the people who were not doing the heroic work like driving ambulances said to me you know I'm going to be locked away I'm finally going to read Tolstoy you know I'm going to learn French on Duolingo and you will have noticed no one read Tostoy, no one, no one, read French, or very few people, right? In fact, people Googling, how do I get my brain to work, went up by 300%. And uh, I think I understood the reason why even then, because I had already interviewed an incredible woman named Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who is um, the Surgeon General of California, the senior medical officer in the state, and a completely amazing person. And she explained to me, she'd already studied the effect of stress on attention. She said to me, Imagine one day you're walking down the street and out of the blue, you're attacked by a bear and you survive. In the weeks and months that follow, something completely involuntary will happen to your attention. Um, you'll start scanning the horizon for signs of risk and danger uh, because something came out of the blue and attacked you. So your brain is doing its job. It's like, OK, what else might come out of the blue and attack you? okay, now imagine that you were attacked by a bear again. At that point, you'd likely go into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is where it's very hard to focus on the thing right in front of you because, you know, your brain is just always scanning for what could endanger you, what could endanger you. And remember I interviewed a brilliant child psychologist in Adelaide in Australia named Dr. John Giordini, who said to me, look, deep focus is really good strategy when you're safe, right? Sit and read a book, you'll learn, you'll grow. Deep focus is a really dumb strategy when you're in danger. You'd be a fool to sit at the Battle of the Somme. Reading Tolstoy, you're going to get shot in the head, right? We evolved to be able to pay deep focus when we feel safe. I think a lot of us have really struggled in this pandemic to focus because we haven't felt safe because we're not safe, right? the bear came back. The bear came back two more times. We're in a pandemic. None of us have lived through this before. And in addition to the stress of the fear of the virus, there was also the stress of the huge upending of our lives, our sense of the future. So there are certainly some aspects of what happened in COVID that would have improved people's attention and focus. The world slowed down. And there's evidence that when things slow down, your attention improves, but at the same time, there were all sorts. So you're definitely right to bring that up and, and put that point to me, Michelle. But I, I would argue for most people, there were countervailing forces that happened at the same time: more screen time, more switching, more stress. That I think for most of us will have countervailed the positive effects of the slowness, but n- clearly not for everyone. And Elizabeth Gilbert is clearly a good example of someone for whom the, the slowness was enough that it that it countervailed the other factors.
0: Powerful points there really powerful. So let's talk about the power of the screen. Um, you, you've said with all the algorithmic power, all the engineering genius, some of the cleverest people in the world are dedicated to one goal. How do I get Johan or Michelle to pick up their phone more often and scroll <laughs> as long as they possibly can? So with social media companies or indeed anyone linked to the web, um, finding themselves almost forced to create content that hacks attention in a way that you say harms attention. I wonder when we look at the solution. You, you talk about an attention movement to reclaim our attention and focus. How optimistic are you that this attention movement will take shape?
1: So I interviewed enormous numbers of people in Silicon Valley who had been designing the very apps that obsess you and our children, and I and I learned from them something really important. So, for example, Dr. James Williams, who uh, had been a senior strategist at Google was horrified by what they were doing to people's attention, quit and has become, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. And he said to me, look, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone had the idea to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We can put right some of the things that have gone wrong with how the internet works. There's loads of great things about the internet. The internet has been a profoundly positive force in many ways, but there are some aspects of some of the apps that we use that are currently designed to hack and invade our attention. And we can put that right if we want to. They don't have to work that way. So at the moment, every time anyone listening, don't do it, please. But if you open Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and start to scroll, what you need to understand is those companies immediately begin to make money out of you in two ways. The first way is really obvious. You see ads. Okay, everyone listening knows how that works. The second way is more subtle and much more important everything you do on these apps is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to build up a profile of who you are. They are collating everything you do at the algorithms. So let's say that you say that you like, I don't know, Bette Midler, donald trump and you tell your mother you just bought some diapers right okay so it figures out if you like bet midler and you're a man you're probably gay uh if you like donald trump you're probably conservative uh, and if you just bought diapers you've, you've probably had a baby right it's gathering all this data about you to figure out a to sell information about you to advertisers you're not the customer you're the product they sell to advertisers but secondly because they're figuring out what are the weaknesses in your attention What are the things that will keep you scrolling, right? They're constantly figuring that out because for a very simple reason, the more often you pick up your phone and the longer you scroll in this current business model, the more money they make. So just like the head of KFC, all he cares about is did you go to KFC today? How much KFC did you eat? All the heads of these companies care about is how often did you pick up your phone and how long did you scroll? But it's important to understand it doesn't have to work this way. We can have the internet, we can have all the social media we have, but have it not be designed to specifically hack and invade our attention. And in terms of whether I'm optimistic, I'll give you a historical example that makes me optimistic and I think should make you optimistic, Michelle, and your listeners. So when we were kids, and you'll just remember this, Michelle, I, I just remember it as well. The standard form of gasoline in Singapore, in Britain, across the world, was leaded gasoline, right? So it was... Petrol with a lot of lead in it. A bit before our time, people used to paint their homes with leaded paint. And then it was discovered that exposure to lead profoundly harms people's brains and, in particular, harms children's ability to focus and pay attention. So, if it's in the paint or if it's in gasoline, it gets into the air, we all breathe it in, and it was harming kids' brains. So, what happened? A group of ordinary housewives across the world, and they were mostly housewives and they were mostly mothers, banded together and said, Well, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing the lead industry just to make money to harm our kids' brains? This is crazy. And it's important to understand what they didn't say. They didn't say, so let's ban all paint. They didn't say, let's ban all petrol. Right? They didn't say, we're anti-petrol now. Right? They said, let's deal with the specific components in the lead and in the paint that are harming our kids' brains. In the same way, I'm not anti-tech. I love tech. I want to have tech that helps us, not tech that harms us. So I want to deal with the specific aspects and the tech that are harming our attention. And what happened with these mothers, these women who banded together? They fought and they fought and it took years. And you will have noticed there's no leaded paint anymore. There's no leaded petrol anymore. They're banned almost all over the world now. They prevailed. So it's a really good model for us that I argue for throughout Stolen Focus. I argue for my book about attention, I argue there are dozens of things we can do as individuals to protect ourselves and our children. And then we have to follow the example of those mothers who prevailed in Singapore, who prevailed in Britain, who identified something in the environment that was harming our attention and our kids' attention, and got it out of the environment, right? We can do that these factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention from the stuff in the food we eat that's harming our attention. We don't sleep enough. There's aspects of the way we work that are harming our attention. We can deal with those factors, right? But we've got to come together and do it because at the moment we're in a race. On one side of the race, you've got these 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our ability to focus and pay attention. And they are on course to become more powerful if we don't act, right? And um, Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years on the current trajectory than it was in the last 40. That's one side of the race. On the other side of the race, there's got to be a movement of all of us saying, no, no, you don't get to do this to us. No, you don't get to do this to my children. No, you don't get to do this to our brains. No, we choose something better. We choose focus. We choose to be able to think deeply. We choose for our children to be able to play outdoors. We choose to be able to read books. We can choose focus if we want to, but we've got to understand the forces that are doing this to us. And we've got to fight against them. And we've got to take them on both p- in our personal lives and in our children's lives and at a bigger political level. I absolutely believe we can do that. Human beings have won bigger fights than this before. Your grandmother's lives my grandmother's lives were profoundly disfigured by sexism and misogyny my swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote when she was the age i am now right all sorts of what what happened women didn't just give up they got up and they fought for something better we can do the same right we don't have to tolerate our brains and our children's brains being profoundly degraded and invaded in the way they are at the moment we can protect them and defend ourselves if we want to
0: It's a profoundly important book. I've already changed so much of the way I function. I've stopped trying to fool myself into thinking I can watch two screens at the same time (laughs) and read the subtitles because one's in a foreign language. Uh, So, you know, I can't thank you enough for sharing your ideas with us today, Johan. Such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you.
1: Uh, Michelle, it was a total pleasure for me to talk to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg.